All right, before we continue in the book of James, I have a public service announcement, if you will, or I'm going to make it a personal service announcement um, because it's personally related to me. I had a few people call the church from our congregation this week and email me and said, "Um, Pastor, we got an email from you asking for gift cards. (laughs) So let me explain. And this happens, unfortunately, I have pastor friends who this happens to, apparently there are, there are people that will create email addresses that appear to be from pastors, and uh, somehow they get communication, and so I just want to set the record straight that I will never and would never contact any of you asking for gift cards. So I appreciate you calling and let us know. Obviously, there's nothing that we can specifically do about an individual creating an email address. I am praying that their computer gets a nasty virus this week, but that's beside the point. So I just wanted to set the record straight. I apologize for that, but please delete and ignore and know that that is not coming from me. It's coming from Pastor Rock. So... (laughs) He said, keep the checks coming. Uh, That's a joke if you're watching online. Oh, my goodness. Hey, we're in week two. Uh, We're looking at this book of James. It's five chapters long. I'm not going to ask if you did your homework, but I encourage you last week to, to read this letter from the brother of Jesus As we go through it. So if you didn't read chapter 1 or chapter 2 last week, uh, fortunately it's not a really long book. So you should be able to catch up. But we're going to look at the second chapter today. But in case you forget or weren't here last week, I want to remind you that this book that we have in our New Testament is a letter. And it was written from one of the brothers of Jesus. The Bible shows and demonstrates to us that Jesus had brothers, and they did not believe that he was the Messiah before he resurrected. And anyone, as I said last week, that has a sibling can rightfully understand why that would be the case. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his brother James, and James not only became a Christ follower, but he became an early leader in the first century church. He really became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and of course he went on to be a contributor to what we have as the New Testament in our, in our Bible. And the book of James is a letter that was written specifically to Jewish followers of Jesus who were scattered across the Mediterranean and suffering a great deal of adversity because of their faith in Jesus. They were being persecuted. They were very poor. Um, They were being taken advantage of. James himself was martyred in the year 62 AD for not renouncing his faith um, in his brother Jesus. And this book of James or this letter is really a heartfelt sermon that can be a blueprint for our life. I'm sure like me, a lot of you use GPS systems, whether it's on your phone or in your car when you're trying to navigate and get somewhere. The book of James is similar to that. It's a GPS system as we, as followers of Jesus, navigate our life. And some have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament as well. And as we discovered last week, immediately in this pastoral letter, James addresses one of the most challenging questions that every follower of Jesus is going to have to wrestle with. And that question is this, why does God allow his people to suffer? 
And the answer to that question that James gives us is that sometimes God's greatest gift to his children is the gift of struggle. And just like mom and dads, we recognize that our kids need to experience adversity and challenge in their life so that they grow up to be mature. So too our heavenly father desires to use trials and challenges in our life so that we develop an enduring faith so that our faith is made whole, complete, that we grow into spiritual maturity. Now, the overall theme of the entire letter of James is this. James desires those who profess to be followers of Jesus to take this faith that they have on the inside, to take this faith that's in their mind and in their heart, the faith that's in the four walls of this church, and for it to be displayed outside so that our world sees it, our community sees it, our neighbors see it. Now, the word faith is pretty significant for us. We throw that word around a lot. We are called a people of faith. We're called a community of faith. When someone becomes a Christian or a follower of Jesus, we often say that person placed their faith in Jesus. Faith is no small thing. And not surprisingly, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. Let me give you just a few examples. Here in the New Testament alone, Paul writes, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous, how? Through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends all on faith. Okay, he continues in, a, in another letter to the church in Corinth where Paul pretty much says, not pretty much, he tells us we need to live how? By faith, not by sight. We need to be a community of people, a congregation, followers who live by faith, not by just what we see. We got to live by faith. The writer of Hebrews may have the most powerful statement in all of the Bible when it comes to faith. It's a verse, again, you're familiar with. It is impossible, the writer of Hebrews says, to please God without faith. Meaning, you can't make God happy. (laughs) You can't please him without faith. Faith is central to who we are. However, while we regularly use that word faith, um, there are different definitions, if you will. Faith means different things to different people. And my question to you is, did you know that there are different types of faith? We're going to discover that in James in just a moment. But first, look at this statement by Paul that affirms that. Paul says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Paul is calling these Jesus followers to do a deep dive investigation into the type of faith they have. He's asking them to test their faith to make sure it's genuine. Meaning, it is possible to have a faith that is not genuine. Paul is saying it's possible for a person to claim to be a Jesus follower in name only. Claiming to have faith but possessing one that is counterfeit to the real thing. My hope is that we would accept Paul's challenge today. That we would examine our hearts, that we would examine our faith, that we would test ourselves to make sure that our faith is one that is sincere, one that is genuine. As we go to the letter of James today, we're going to read a portion of this letter in the second chapter that really puts meat on the bone when it comes to discovering different types of faith. Now, it's a passage that um, if you follow Jesus for a while, you read your Bible for a while, you're familiar with. It's one that can seem controversial. 
It can seem even contradictory to other passages of the Bible, specifically passages that the Apostle Paul wrote. However, we are going to see that both Paul and James are on the exact same page when it comes to how a person is made right with God and for what it means to us, for us to live out genuine faith, or as I'm going to call it today, dynamic faith. First of all, before we talk about the different types of faith, I want to ask the question to make sure that we all understand the, the answer. How do you become right with God? How does an ungodly person become right with God? Well, before I answer that, it's really important that everybody starts on the same basis, knowing that when we are born, you are not right with God. You're not just naturally born being right with God. Because of sin, because of disobedience through Adam and Eve and Genesis, all of us are born into not being right with God. Every person has sinned. Every person is in need of a savior. However, there is the good news, if you will. There is a way in which every person can be made right with God. So let's look at this. We call this justification by faith. It's a fancy word in what Paul says here. He writes this in the book of Romans, third chapter. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Now before I continue, Paul is... Go ahead, he's going he's to talk to us about how to be made right with God. But before he tells us the how-to, he's telling us how we are not made right with God any longer. He is saying that God has shown us a new way, really, to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. You see, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the times of Moses and the prophets long ago, when we read the Old Testament, that's an Old Covenant. And in the way in which people were made right with God, the people of Israel, what would happen is they would sin and they needed to be made right with God. What would happen? The priests, the priests would go into the temple and they would sacrifice, they would offer a blood sacrifice, and then the people would be made right with God. And then they would sin again, the priests would go into the temple, offer a sacrifice, and it was over and over and over again. Paul is saying, you no longer have to do that. There is a new way. Because in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, he changes all that. Paul says, now, we are now made right. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So we no longer, it's not Pastor Allen that goes and offers a a lamb in the temple for all the sins of the people. No, that, that is the old covenant. The new covenant, the way people are made right with God, is simple. By placing their faith in Christ Jesus. Plain and simple, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, every person can be made right with God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. By repenting, acknowledging that you're not right with God. Believing that Jesus willingly sacrificed his life for us, that he was resurrected from the dead, Paul goes out of his way in more than one of his writings to make sure that we understand this is a free gift. It's the gift of salvation, meaning there is nothing you can do to earn it. Some of you are here today, and your very attendance, you think, is what's earning you your right position with God. And I hate to disappoint you, but it's not. No amount of money No amount of charity, no amount of volunteering 
is what makes you in right standing with God. It is a free gift by you placing your faith in Jesus. You can't earn it by doing good things. Here's where it gets a little tricky. At least some may think it gets tricky at first read. We're going to look at our text for today. It's James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Let's look what James, the brother of Jesus, has to say about faith. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food, no clothing, and you say, well, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? James says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it is useless. Now, he doubles down on that seven verses later. Look at this statement by James. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Everybody go, huh? Wait a second. That seems to be opposite of what we just heard Paul saying. Now, let me say this. God's word, the Bible, does not contradict itself. Okay? God is a God of truth. Now, when we read passages like this and we wrestle with them and they seem to be contradictory, the error is always in us. The error is always on our side. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit leads us in all truth. This is the Bible that was inspired by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we wrestle with these things, we need to ask the Spirit's leading as he leads us in all truth. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. So then, how do we resolve this apparent contradiction then between Paul and James? Well, as you read Paul's letter throughout the New Testament, as you read all of his letters, it is apparent that there were abuses to Paul's teaching and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We even see this today. It's not something that was just back then. We do it today, and here's what I mean by that. There were those who took Paul's justification by faith. You mean, and they would say, okay, I don't have to be circumcised. Whew, thank God. I don't have to follow the law. You mean, I can eat whatever I want. I can, I can drink whatever I want. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have that. Well, that means I can just go and worship and go live my life as normal. How many have heard that before? Let me put it in modern day terms. Faith is more than coming into a church service singing, I surrender all, I surrender all. And the pastor says, hey, raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. And you go like this, and then you just leave these doors and you go back to your sinful life. Okay, there are those who abuse that. Paul talked about freedom. Yes, followers of Jesus have freedom, but it's not freedom to just keep on sinning. Our actions matter. Now, here's a crucial text where we can see that Paul and James are really in harmony with one another rather than at odds. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, and Galatians is the book where Paul talks a lot about freedom. But Paul says, for when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, how we are made right by God, it's placing our faith in Jesus. He goes on to say there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. But what's important some of your Bibles will say what counts is faith expressing itself in love. What counts to God? What's important to God? Faith expressing itself in love. Notice very carefully what's important, what counts. It's faith. However, he qualifies that faith. 
It's a faith that expresses itself through love. As we see in just a, as we'll see in just a few moments, Paul's making the very same argument, really, that James is making. However, James also affirms Paul position, Paul's position of being justified by faith in that same chapter. Speaking about Abraham, James says in verse 23, So it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. If you were to ask James and Paul the same question, the same question being, how does an ungodly person get right with God? Both James and Paul would answer by faith. A person becomes right with God by faith. However, any faith that is not demonstrated by acts of love is no faith at all. You see, we are made right with God by believing in Jesus, repenting of our sins, believing in Jesus, and putting our faith in him. In that moment, we are made right with God. But our faith, our genuine faith, is proven by what we do afterwards. Are you with me? All right. Getting back to us examining our own faith. Paul says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. So what type of faith do you have? James talks about three different times of faith, and I'm going to lay out three different times of faith, and this is not original to me. Warren Wearsby offers these specific descriptions, uh, but I want to talk about them for a minute. Here's the first type of faith that James talks about. He talks about a dead faith. It's possible for someone who is a Jesus follower to have a dead faith. In chapter 2, verse 17, James says, you see, faith isn't, isn't, isn't by itself enough. Unless it produces deeds, it's a dead and useless faith. So we need to ask ourselves, is the faith that we have dead and useless? It's possible to be a Christian. It's possible to be a Jesus follower and have a faith that is useless. To have a faith that is dead. This is a type of faith of lip service only and not lifestyle. It's a faith that I believe takes no action. I'll go as far as to say it's a Sunday morning type of faith. It's a faith that gets up on Sunday and puts your best clothes on and comes through these doors and then leaves and you just go back to living your normal life. And no one in the world ever sees the faith that we talk about here on the inside. It's a faith that's in lip service only. James says it's possible for someone to be a follower of Jesus and have a dead and useless faith. Let me remind you that Jesus said you can identify a tree by its fruit so you can identify people by their actions. It is a faith that if it were a tree, it would have only leaves and no fruit. And if I remember the gospel story correctly, and I believe I do, Jesus cursed a fig tree for not bearing fruit. You see, our faith makes us right with God, but there has to be fruit on, an, on the tree. Here's a good question to ask yourself as you examine your own heart and your own faith today. If you were to be arrested for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I'm not talking about what you post on Facebook and Instagram. If you were living in a country where you could not legally live your faith out and you were arrested as a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life outside of these four walls to convict you of being a follower of Jesus? It's a dead faith. Here's the second type of faith. James talks about a demonic faith. Whoa, I mean, that's pretty scary. Think about that. 
person who's a Jesus follower, a Christian, that carries a demonic faith. Let me show you what I mean. James, verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. James golf claps. Congratulations. Congratulations, Jesus follower. You believe there is one God. Even the demons believe this, James says, and they tremble in terror. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is delivering a demon-possessed man who acknowledges Jesus as God. Matthew chapter 8, two demons acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Let me remind you, it was the fourth chapter of Matthew. Satan himself is tempting Jesus and knows God's word. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus and have a demonic type of faith. Well, what kind of faith is that? It is a knowledge-based faith that is void of true Holy Spirit transformation on the inside. It is a faith of the mind that ignores the royal law of God in loving others as yourself. It is a rebellious, rebellious faith demonstrating no repentance, no humility, and no compassion for others. It is a, a flesh-led faith that follows your own will and one that is not spirit-led. Lord, help us if we have a demonic faith. And here's the third faith. There's dead, there's demonic, and there's a dynamic faith. An active faith. James says, you see, his faith, speaking of Abraham, his faith and his actions worked together. And his actions made his faith complete. Here we are again, the third week in a row, this word complete, teleos, in the Greek, comes back up again. Pastor Rock talked about it when he referenced Jesus saying, challenging us, be perfect as I am perfect. Same word. It's not sinless. <laughs> it's spiritual, mature, whole, complete. James referenced it in chapter 1 when he talked about us going through trials and tribulation that that produces an enduring faith, which leads to us being spiritually mature. It leads to us being teleos, complete, being whole. And here again, he says, spiritually mature. You want a dynamic faith? It is your faith which sets you being justified before God, made right in God's image. But then it's your actions working together. Those two things are what make your faith complete. It's what gives you a dynamic faith. I'll say it in this one sentence. Dynamic faith demands obedience, courage, and love. We won't look at the specific verses, but right after this, James uses Abraham and Rahab as an example of what dynamic faith is. Remember the story of Abraham? Specifically, God promises him a son, Isaac. In Genesis chapter 2, that promise is fulfilled, and Abraham has his son, Isaac. And what does God ask him to do? To sacrifice the very promise to sacrifice the very blessing that God had given him. And Abraham responds in obedience. Dynamic faith begins with obedience to God. But then James continues and he brings up Rahab. Rahab was not an Israelite. In fact, she was a prostitute. Found in Joshua chapter 2, right before God gives them the city of Jericho. Joshua sends in spies to Jericho and they run into this prostitute named Rahab and Rahab acknowledges what God has done through the people of Israel and she demonstrates courageousness a, 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 an amazing amount of courage by going against her own city her own people because she knows that God is with the Israelites she demonstrates courage 
James says dynamic faith is obedient, it's courageous, but it also is demonstrated in love. At the beginning of this chapter, he's, talk, he's, he's criticizing those for not taking care of the poor. Not demonstrating the royal law, which Jesus says is to love others as yourself. So if we're not going to have a dead and useless faith, if we're not going to have a demonic faith, and we want to have a, a dynamic faith, then we need to be people obedient to God. We need to be people who are courageous and bold. And we need to be people, we need to be people that love others as we do ourselves. That's what it means to have dynamic faith. I want to give you an example, a real-life example of dynamic faith. I, I told this story, I believe it was about two, two and a half years ago. But it happens to be the eight-year anniversary of the death of a martyr just this past Wednesday. His name is Matthew Ierga, and I said it two and a half years ago. I always uh, keep this picture of him in my Bible and his name, the date that he was martyred, and a statement by him. If you're not familiar with that story or you don't remember, it was February 15th, 2015, eight years ago this past Wednesday. 21 men were killed for their faith in Jesus on a beach in Libya, and they were killed by ISIS. Of these 21 men, 20 were from Egypt, and they were Christ followers. They were working in Libya to support their families back home. 20 of them were Christians. One of them, the man in the middle, Matthew Ierga, not only was he not a Christian, he was not from Egypt. He was from Western Africa, the country of Ghana. And on that fateful day, February 15th, 2015, as you can see in the picture, all of them knelt on their knees on that beach and ISIS stood behind them with a knife at their throat, knowing that they were followers of Jesus and said, you renounce your faith. You declare that Jesus is not God and will let you live. Otherwise, you're dead. And one by one, they said, Jesus is Lord, and they died. Now remember, Matthew in the middle was not a Christ follower. So they get to Matthew. <laughs> they said, renounce your faith. And his response in that moment was, their God is my God. And Matthew died. And I believe in that moment went to heaven. Amen. Now here's the question. Why? Here's a man... I don't even know if he spoke the language. He was from Ghana. They were from Egypt. Wasn't a Christ follower. What would make Matthew in that moment where he could have saved himself? What did he see? What did he experience from those other 20 men that in a moment like that, he would say, their God is my God and become a martyr for Jesus. Someone that he never followed until that moment. One day in, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to ask Matthew, what was it? When you were together in a room or in a cell, did you see those 20 men? Were they worshiping? Were they singing songs in the midst of being captive? Did they pray for Matthew? Did they pray for one another? Did they quote scripture? I don't know, but Matthew had to experience some type of dynamic faith <laughs> that made him in that moment say, their God is my God. That is the power of dynamic faith. That is the power of obedience combined with courage, combined with love for others. Two and a half years ago when I shared this story, I didn't know the second part. Pastor Glenn 
Hannah, our former missions pastor, came up to me after the service and said, you didn't finish the story. I said, I didn't know there was more to the story. And as he shared it with me, I was like, are you, are you certain? Like, I, I mean, I never heard that. Can you verify that? And he did. And so it's the only reason why I'm sharing it with you. There is a pastor here in Pittsburgh who pastors an Arabic-speaking congregation who is from Cairo, Egypt, where those 20 Christian Egyptians were from. Pastor Glenn and that man were having a conversation, and I, I don't know the specifics of how this happened or even the time frame. I believe it was a couple years afterwards. Two members of ISIS, as a result of this, came to know Jesus. Now, think about the fruit, the dynamic faith of those 20 Egyptians. <laughs> That's the power of dynamic faith. Would you stand to your feet today? Father, I was reminded this week is my personal time with you. I've been reading the story of Saul. And the part I read yesterday morning was he <laughs> thought he was acting on your behalf, but he disobeyed. And your response to the prophet was, it's not sacrifice you want, it's obedience. And where I believe that's important for us today is as powerful as our time of worship was today and as important as this gathering is, I believe that's not necessarily what you seek or not all that you seek. What you really want is when we leave for us to be obedient. You want us to have dynamic faith. Our world needs to see dynamic faith, a faith that is obedient to you despite circumstances, a faith that is courageous and filled with boldness, and a faith that loves others. So God, I pray that, Lord, as we have examined our own heart, that you would do that, that we would not demonstrate a dead or demonic faith, but one that is dynamic. Let the world see that in us. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.